welcome everybody to the LSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, it's a great pleasure to see so many of you here. Um, today's topic is a topic that I think most um, of us will be familiar with, namely the topic of guilt. So most of us will have probably experienced guilt at some point in our lives, whether it be the guilt at breaking a promise or the guilt of telling a lie or the guilt at maybe not sticking to your diet or your exercise regime, which already shows um, why it's an interesting topic that's sort of of concern to all of us, by also, but also why it's a, actually a very um, maybe complicated issue, because as I've just said, you can feel guilty about, about many different things, and it's not at all clear whether and if so how they are related. Um, so today we want to provide or we want to engage in a philosophical analysis of this topic guilt and we want to ask questions such as is guilt one emotion or many? Um, what is the relationship between different kinds of guilt? For example, as I said, moral guilt, guilt at breaking a diet. Uh, is there such a thing as collective guilt as well? Um, can a nation be guilty of something, for example? Um, and what is the experience of guilt in relation to cultural and religious backgrounds? Does that have an influence on how we experience guilt? So these and, and related questions will be the topic of tonight's dialogue. Um, and the nice thing about a dialogue from the chair's perspective is that I don't have much work to do. I'll basically just introduce the two speakers who will then uh, discuss with, with each other for about 45 minutes, right? And then we'll, have, we'll open the discussion up to contributions from you. So hopefully this will be a very lively and engaging evening. And with us to discuss this topic of guilt is uh, Robert Eagleston, who is Professor of Contemporary Literature and Thought at Royal Holloway, University of London. He is um, also the Deputy Director and was formerly Director of the Holocaust Research Center. And he works on contemporary literature and literary theory, contemporary philosophy, and on Holocaust and genocide studies. Um, and then with us also is uh, Dr. Edward Hackcourt, who is a university lecturer in philosophy at Oxford University. And his research interests are in ethics, in particular moral psychology, neo-Aristotelianism, and child development. So maybe we'll bring in some aspects of that as well. The ethical dimensions of psychoanalysis, meta-ethics, Nietzsche's ethics, literature and philosophy, and Wittgenstein. So broad range of research interests that are potentially relevant to this topic as well. And so, as I said, without um, saying much more, I'll just hand over to our two speakers and look forward to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I think by, by, brief, agree by brief and hasty agreement outside the front door, uh, we said that I was going to launch in and make a few remarks first, and then... Bob was going to respond. So uh, Christina said, well, of course, you'll all have felt guilty uh, at some time in your lives. That puts me in mind of a story I heard recently about a philosopher who submitted a paper to a journal about irrational blame. And when one of the rejection letters came back, uh, this person was not accused of having made a philosophical mistake. On the contrary, the referee protested, I have never blamed anybody irrationally. The phenomenon you're trying to describe in this paper simply doesn't exist. So it's just possible that we've got a whiter than white audience here. None of you actually know from your own experience what we're talking about at all. I hope not. I hope not, though. Otherwise, you may find it hard to follow 
the discussion. So let me begin just by saying a tiny bit about why I'm interested in guilt. And I think we're all interested in guilt because we do all experience it. And so if we're even minimally philosophically minded, we're going to try and get a philosophical handle on it somehow or other. Um, but my own interest in it begins uh, in the following way. Um, there's a long-standing thought in philosophy that's associated particularly with Kant, but that's been taken up by many others since that part of being a person or an ideal of personhood is to be autonomous. And being autonomous is, among other things, um, to be a self-regulator. Or perhaps you could say it's one theory about what it is to be a self-regulator. So we, we mature morally as we become capable of regulating ourselves. And if it's anything, guilt is one of the emotions of self-regulation. So that's my way into the subject. But although I can say that with some degree of confidence about guilt, and although we all use the word without thinking we're talking about a fragmented, disunified phenomenon, it's extremely difficult to say what exactly it is and what all the things that we confidently call guilt have in common. So if you read philosophers' pronouncements on this subject, um, various themes come to the fore. Um, and let me pick a few. One is that guilt has got a privileged relationship to morality. Another, it's got a privileged relationship to uh, responsibility, and in particular to the intentional. And a third thought is that it's got a privileged relationship to interiority, or to our inner lives, as opposed to our relations with others. Um, and sometimes this goes with an unfavourable comparison between guilt and shame, but that's perhaps for another day. Um, but I don't think that guilt does stand in a privileged relation to any of those things. So, as Christine has already indicated, of course we can feel guilt about things that we do that are morally wrong, upsetting somebody deliberately or lying, but we can also feel guilty about... Uh, failures of religious observance. We can feel guilty about uh, breaking diets or exercise regimes. People can feel guilty about um, infringements of all sorts of rules and regulations which may not be moral. Uh, you particularly find this with children. Um, for example, uh, feeling guilty about going through the no-entry sign uh, going through the electronic door in a supermarket marked no entry rather than through the one that says come in this way. Um, and a uh, very famous literary example of somebody who seems to have felt guilty, Oedipus, felt guilty about something that he did by mistake because he didn't know that the nuisance, old nuisance at the crossroads was his father. And it was only when he found out that he was his father, that he started feeling distinctively bad about it. So, of course it's possible to say that there is something wrong with the instances of guilt that don't conform to the moral template, but you've got to be careful with using that line of argument. Let's consider the parallel argument in the case of fear. Of course there are cases of irrational fear, but in order for an emotion so much to be identifiable as 
an irrational version of a familiar emotion. We've got to be able to trace a link between the rational emotion and the irrational deformation of it. And that's easy in the case of fear. If somebody has an irrational fear of spiders, let's say they, at some level, must believe that spiders are threatening or spiders are dangerous or spiders have some characteristic which would rationalize fear. And they can't shape that belief, however many books about spiders they read. So it's clear what the link is with fear, but it's not clear what the link is. And if you, if you, if you say, well, these things aren't really guilt because they're not rational guilt, you can't say fear of spiders is not really fear because it's irrational fear. And yet we need to find what the link thought is in all these different cases of guilt. So that's a set of worries about uh, what we might call the characteristic objects of guilt. So when we talk about an emotion, we might try and say what all its instances have got in common by saying what all its objects have in common. Is there some feature that objects of guilt have to have in common or be thought to have in common for the emotion to be guilt? Compare danger or something like that with fear. But another way of thinking about what holds together different instances of guilt might be the phenomenology of guilt. So some people have said that guilt is a kind of internalized, oh, sorry, and I'm forgetting one other thing about its privileged relation with interiority. That's just, yeah, one other wrong thing that I think people say about uh, guilt, which is uh, people say that guilt, the, the typical forum in which guilt is staged is the internal forum. <laughs> because, as it were, the, um, the voice in relation to which you primarily experience guilt, the scolding voice, or the voice reminding you of your transgression, is an inner voice, but that doesn't seem to be right either, because very often people only start feeling guilty when they say something that they've done to the right audience. You don't feel guilty about what you did until your case came to court, until you told your friend about it, and so on and so on. It might not happen with everybody that way. But once again, that's an intelligible instance of guilt. Um, so yes, another way of trying to get at what unifies guilt is thinking about the phenomenology. Um, and here again, uh, it's very hard to think of what phenomenology, what feel all experiences of guilt have got in common. And let me just draw attention to one uh, area of difficulty. So I said earlier that according to some views the forum in which the experience of guilt is most characteristically staged is the internal forum as it were, you vis-a-vis -vis the judge of your own conscience. Um, and even if we reject that idea that the judge has to be some kind of internal voice we're all very familiar about with situations where guilt is experienced in relation to a judge or an assessor of some kind or other, be it an inner voice of conscience or a friend whom you've made into the keeper of your conscience or a judge or a parent or God. But there's another phenomenology of guilt which seems to be quite distinct. So suppose that you get very cross with your young child and hit him or her you feel consumed with guilt instantly afterwards 
But no thought of a judge or tribunal uh, or assessor of any kind need play any role in your thinking at all in the phenomenology of that experience. Your entire field of vision is filled by the thought and experience of the suffering child. But it seems to me that that is still guilt. Um, and that kind of case is uh, a sort of case which, for people who want to describe guilt uh, in terms of a relationship to a superego, for instance, uh, drives guilt underground. That's to say it makes the uh, assessor uh, necessarily an unconscious assessor, if there is one. It's one the, the fact that there is one is not given in our experience, even though there are many other experiences of guilt where we are very conscious of a judge or assessor or tribunal of some kind. But for my money, the case where you hit your child and then feel dreadful is guilt. Um, just as much as the tribunal-focused or judge-focused experiences are. And that difference perhaps goes with another difference, although this could be complicated. Um, there are different characteristic ways of dealing with guilt. So one way of dealing with guilt is to do something nasty to yourself. Whether it's crawling up a mountain on your knees, or turning yourself into the police, or going without something. Um, but there's another response to guilt which is just as intelligible and that is trying to make it all right with the person you've hurt. In other words, reparation. And those two things are not always found together. And yet we confidently say and confidently see these two ways of behaving as intelligible responses to the same emotion. Now why? Why do we get two such different things? Um, Again, a way of handling this is to say that, and some psychologists do say this, um, that if you have the tribunal-focused, do-something-nasty-to-yourself response, that's irrational guilt, that this kind of hypertrophied emotion that you really shouldn't have if you were more mentally well-adjusted. You wouldn't be experiencing guilt like that because it's a pointless emotion, it's not constructive, uh, whereas if you have the victim-focused experience followed by reparation, that's good because after all you've done something wrong, what better response to that than to try and make it all right again? Um, I don't think it's as simple as that because I think that these different phenomenologies may be related to differences in upbringing, possibly to differences in religious upbringing, uh, and I'd be very unwilling to say that everybody who has had a religious upbringing uh, in which self-regulation is thought of in terms of regulating your relationship to a divine uh, lawgiver of some kind must be you know, not quite, in some sense, not quite right in the head. I suspect that you can get hypertrophied, overdone versions of both those phenomenologies. And so we're still left with the question, what makes it the case, if anything, that those two things are both instances of the same emotion. Well, there's plenty more to say. There are other, there are theories about what guilt really is. For example, is guilt a kind of internal, fear of an internalized authority or something like that? But perhaps we can get on to those later. I'll just hand over for now to, to Bob and see, see how you react to all that. Well, uh, that's, well, thank you very much for opening up 
with such a lot of questions and complications. I suppose um, my I, I was going to, be, going to begin by um, thinking. I suppose I, I, I was, the reason I suppose I was asked to, to speak on this is because I, I I come to the issue of guilt from a very different perspective or from a slightly different perspective. Um, I wrote my thesis on a philosopher called Emmanuel Levinas, who talks uh, quite a lot about guilt and a lot about responsibility. And as it were, in direct contrast to how you began saying there might be somebody in here who, you know, who could, uh, who's uh, never felt guilt, one of the things that Levinas says is that the, um, you can always tell a righteous person because they always feel more guilty. And the more righteous you are, the more guilty you feel. Um, and uh, he has quite an interesting take on guilt. Uh, which he ties very closely to responsibility, rather in the way you were talking with the sort of classical philosophical move. But he ties it in a, in a, in a more profound sort of way. He takes it as his sort of slogan, Levinas's slogan uh, comes from Dostoevsky, the brothers Karamazov, where one of the brothers says, um, I have two different translations here, he says, we are all responsible for everything and guilty in front of everyone, but I am that more than all the others. Or, uh, we're all guilty for, for all, and for all men before all, and I more than the others. So the sense that he, this, this uh, Levinas hates art in general, but this, this quotation he takes from uh, Karamazov, um, is over and over again about uh, it's endless responsibility. So what Levinas uh, tries to do in his work is to explain where, our, where ethics comes from. Okay, or, or in fact, not to explain it, to, because to explain something is really to put it into a sort of uh, a, fr a frame of reason, sort of why why it comes from somewhere, but rather to describe how it is that the the ethic systems of rules and so on, and our ethical feelings and motivations, where they arise from, and he argues throughout his work that they come, our feelings of ethics come um, in our engagement with with the other with the other person. And in relationship to the other person, our first, uh, our first most primordial sort of relationship is not one of, as it were, two equals meeting. Our first primordial relationship with the, the face of the other, with the other person, is one in which the other is superior to us. So straight away, as soon as we encounter the other, another person, we are, as it were, um, we are in their... We are in their debt. We owe, we owe them something. We are, we're responsible to them. And so to all others, all the other people, for Levinas, we're constantly responsible. We have, this, we have this get, this debt, this guilt. And so he says somewhere, he says um, in a court of law, when someone's declared guilty, what, what they mean, what's meant is they're responsible. And so for Levinas, uh, this question of guilt is a question of our sort of fundamental responsibility for all others. And it's from this fundamental responsibility for all others, for Levinas, that uh, ethics comes and that uh, everything else sort of emerges. So rather than, uh, as it were, guilt being the result of some fault you have committed that you then feel guilty for, we, all, we find ourselves in a sort of uh, position of, uh, not original sin, but as it were, original guilt, original responsibility, to which we are constantly um, trying to address and whether we um, address it by doing something whether we give the beggar a pound or whether we choose not to give the beggar a pound we're still responding to that fundamental uh, guilt that fundamental responsibility and so that's that's um, where I suppose I I think about 
guilt uh, stemming from. And I think it's, it's its sort of significance. And, and I suppose I can see areas where that ties up with what you were talking about, particularly in terms of the... Um, while you were talking, I was thinking... You were talking about guilt as an emotion, but then not quite as an emotion. And I suppose I was wondering, is it a straightforward... I mean, what... I quite see that it's hard to pin down what guilt is, but is guilt... Is guilt I mean, what, is guilt an emotion, or is it... What's it like in relation to emotions or an yeah. emotion? Well, but th- I, I like the thing that you said about um, the origin of ethics is relationship to, to another person, because I suppose what lay behind... When I said rather cryptically that um, that uh, one te- that autonomy is about self-regulation, or at least perhaps uh, uh, becoming autonomous is one view on what it is what it is to become a self-regulator. The respect in which you might think it's just one view among others is that so there's this picture of one picture of children very dependent on others. They get ordered around, but as they mature, they get the, require the capacity to go it alone. Uh, and so whatever mechanism it is that's regulating them perhaps even in childhood it was a relationship with another, they've taken this into themselves they've got all the necessary equipment on board Um, I think that might be a wrong view of what self-regulation is even in maturity and that it's through and through a social notion so the fundamental idea is not some chip that we've got stored in us but is uh, other ways in which we're disposed to respond to other people. So I'm very much on, on the same page on that. On the question of whether guilt is an emotion, I mean, I think, in one sense, it sort of goes without saying that guilt is an emotion. Um, but then the complexity of guilt might lead us to question what we mean by emotion. Mm. Um, so I think it is an emotion, but I certainly don't mean by that that it's just an experience. Uh, it might be a complex disposition that's associated with certain sorts of thoughts, certain th- sorts of thoughts about what you've done, about what somebody else is like, about certain dispositions to act, such as reparation versus penance, and certain characteristic sorts of experience. So, so yes, it is an emotion, but let's not just say, just think of emotions as twinges or something mm. like that, because it certainly isn't just a twinge. And I was also interested in this, well, I think it comes from my uh, the very brief Levinasian account, but also from your account, about the relationship to interiority. Mm. I mean, I suppose um, we often think of guilt as being exactly as you, the view you discounted, as someone inside us telling us, telling us off, basically. But if it's not just interior, where, where is it? I mean, how, how does guilt relate then to, to our wider social networks? Well, um, you, you said that on Levinas's view, we always experience the other as superior. Um, so I suppose if that's right, uh, you might say that it's that experience of another as superior that is associated with the phenomenology of guilt that I was describing, of the being on the wrong side of a judge or tribunal or assessor of some kind. But um, I wonder whether it's true to uh, early experience to say that we always encounter the other as superior because there's a lot of mutual pleasure and reciprocity and fairly equal stuff going on between parents and tiny children Um, and although it takes some time for about 18 months or so typically for the reparative response of oh no what have I done are you okay Um, response to uh, develop 
you might say that we do sometimes, uh, in, including in our early years, encounter another not as superior, but rather as an equal, as a playmate, uh, as a loved playmate. And this might play a role in explaining that rather more, um, not the sort of deux en bas experience of guilt, but the more egalitarian experience of guilt, of, uh, where your field of vision is fi filled by, oh no, what have I done? How are you? Let me make it better. What do you what do you think? How does how does that notion of guilt and reparation fit into the Levinasian picture? Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? I suppose um, I mean Levinas, I think, would try and and that uh, would try and say his account is not as it were psychological, but as it were philosophical. Mm. But I don't know how far that sidesteps the issue. The, the issues of, of reparation is very interesting, isn't it? I mean, um, in terms of if guilt is, is part of our ontological constitution, then there's no way it can ever be a sway. That's the, the righteous person always feels more guilty. Um, but, the, but it is one of the things about guilt. You do, it is traditionally a thing for which you make reparation, exactly as you, you atone, don't you, to, for, for things that you've done. You, or you, um, and that's very interesting. I think, what Le, I think a Levinasian answer, which may not be a very good answer, is to say that... Um, he talk, Levinas talks about the way in which, uh, in a sort of philosophical parable, for how laws arrive. And he says that if it was just you and me on desert island, I would look after you and you would look after me, and that would be ethics working perfectly. But as soon as there's a third person, then we have to have rules and laws. And then once you create rules and laws, you can then, as it were, sort of fail the law or, and then have to pay, pay reparation yeah. for it. And again, it's a, it's a sort of parable. I don't know how... No, I said out loud, it's out of the childish, but I mean, he does talk quite a lot about it. Um, so I think he, he, Levinas might talk about a sort of this, this uh, primordial guilt as responsibility, and then also a much more legalistic understanding of guilt. Um, and it's certainly true that one of the things that uh, Hannah Arendt talks about, particularly after the Eichmann trial, she's, she is uh, rather pro legal understandings of guilt. And she says that. Um, uh, people who feel guilt for things they weren't responsible for is just an affectation, and in fact, one of the things about uh, the the court, the courtroom, is a sort of um, it's a court of its own right, but also it's a, it's the, one of the last places in society where uh, she says, you know, beyond the Oedipus complex and the zeitgeist, we still have to take responsibility for ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, so, in that sense, I think there are issues of um, how how atonement works as it were beyond. Sort of beyond Levinas. Um, it's interesting. I mean, let, let, let me. So, you, you're absolutely right that atonement is an intelligible response to guilt, but I wonder if um, atonement and reparation are quite the same, or at least the notion of atonement, um, you could say, is a subspecies of reparation, but that is associated with this judge assessor mm. phenomenology. In the sense that, as I understand it at any rate, suppose I upset you in some way. Um, when I atone for that, um, I could very well atone for it by doing something good for you, repairing the damage, but I wouldn't be atoning to you. I'd, by atoning, I'd be making my relationship all right with some third person. Mm. But there is a notion of reparation which doesn't bring in a third party at all, where I just make it all right for you. And once you've been put back to the 
condition you were in before I did my awful thing, and I can see that you're all right, that's, that's that. I'm not guilty anymore. But that leads me to think, which is something you also raised, whether we can, can't think about sort of false guilt and yeah. real guilt. I mean, if, some, if someone says, um, Bob, you had to pay reparations, I can say, yes, yes, I'm very sorry, mm. and, uh, and hand over the money. Or in Kurt Sear's great novel, Disgrace, uh, the protagonist has eventually to apologise to the... Uh, he's ordered to apologise by his university and refuses to because he doesn't feel guilty. And in the end, he does sort of apologise to uh, the family he's offended. Um, but in a very hollow kind of way, mm. where you're not at all convinced by his own feelings of guilt. Mm. And I wonder whether... I mean, what is there a difference between a fake guilt and a real guilt? I mean... It, if you couldn't see from the outside, is there a difference on the inside? It seems to be there is, isn't there? I, I'm, I'm sure there is, but um, just as... Well, you need to say more about what you mean by, by, by fake, because people can, uh, people can act guilty when really there isn't... You know, they, they can deceive themselves that they feel guilty about something yeah. when really they don't. Or they could really feel guilty, but it's an irrational form of guilt. I mean, there are all sorts of deformations of the emotion, but... But not any old thing. You, you know, you can't just wave irrationality as a magic wand, and mm. that just ropes all possible phenomena in as, as instances of guilt. Because there's got to be a story that connects the irrational or the self-deceived. Um, you know, somebody could play act guilty in an inauthentic way, but really believe that they were they were guilty and that they were atoning, and mm. they might they might not be. Um, What's, what's, the, what's the experience of real guilt like? Well, I think there isn't one experience. Yeah, that's, that's exactly that's that's the beginning, that's isn't it? That, that's mm. the trouble. I mean, let, let me say another thing. that You said um, something about um, Arendt and uh, the idea of individual responsibility. I mean, again, it, look, I'm, I'm sh the, the, no, the concept of guilt has a history, and I'm not competent to tell it. So there are... Um, I'm almost sure there are, although I can't recite any instances of this, there are concepts that are a bit like guilt and that somehow feed into our concept of guilt that aren't quite it. That's one thing that makes it complicated to discuss guilt. And another thing is they don't just feed into it historically. It may be that our emotion is an overlapping, incoherent cluster of different things and that's why it's so hard to find a unity. But let me give one instance that may or may not be guilt, but that's definitely historically related to it, and that's the notion of sin. And one of the very strange things about sin is that, at least according to Christianity, you can do time for someone else. At least if that's not the case, the whole of the Christian religion is incoherent. So, but I take it that it's not incoherent, actually. The idea that somebody else can take on themselves the sins of other people and thereby make it all right makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, whether it actually happened or not is another question. But it does, it's not a nonsense story. But if that story does make sense, a concept that's obviously genetically related to our notion of guilt is only very, very loosely related to the idea of individual responsibility, isn't mm. it? Because Christ didn't do anything wrong. But he just said, look, you all were the sinners, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it, I'll do the time for you. And then you'll, it'll be just like 
you having atoned yourselves. I mean, and that does raise the question, doesn't it, of, of, of collective guilt that we talked a little bit about yes. before, which I think is a very uh, interesting question. And I have to say, as I said before, uh, sometimes I think it's really powerful and sometimes I don't believe in it at all, very irritatingly. <laughs> um, uh, I, I suppose I, on the not believing on its side, uh, again, Hannah Arendt, again, in the 60s, after the Eichmann trial, she says very clearly that uh, people, uh, young Germans, actually, she says, young Germans who feel guilt for what had happened, who weren't even born then, she says this is an affectation or, you know, a sort of a mewling thing. She's very hard on it. Um, whereas I, I feel differently from that sometimes. I remember reading uh, an account, uh, quite a famous book now called Britain's Gulags, uh, about the suppression of the Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya. And um, one of the, one of the it's in the press two or three weeks ago because the uh, whole horde of documents which to be said had been destroyed were have in fact been found locked away somewhere um, and but some of the uh, book was based on an account of a policeman from Streatham who was sent out to Kenya to advise the colonial police and he described uh, acts of torture done by the British and by the settlers to the Kikuyu people and I felt a sort of feeling of, uh, of revulsion, of course, and, and of shame, which is one thing, but also one of sort of guilt. And Hannah Arendt's rather firm remarks came back to me. I was thinking, but this doesn't feel like a... When I feel this guilt for this terrible colonial activities, is it just an affectation in my sort of Gaussian reading lefty kind of way? Or is it a real... Is it a real mm. feeling? When do we, mm. how, do, how do we feel about collective guilt? Mm. And if you like transgenerational collective guilt? Even. Yes, well, the transgenerational case is, is interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, there's, there's presumably, if there's such a thing as collective agency, then uh, there is a kind of unproblematic case of collective guilt. So if we all beat up so-and-so, you know, our gang, it wasn't clear exactly who delivered this punch and that kick or who caused which injury, but actually we're all responsible for that happening. And so it makes sense for us all to feel guilty. But that's not what you mean. That's, mm. the, that's the easy case, isn't it? And, and, and I suppose something that, that gives, um, that is good ammunition for somebody who wants to argue that there, is, that there isn't anything the matter with transgenerational collective guilt is that the idea of making of continuing to make reparations in the next generation seems like a good thing to do you know you don't think ah oh, you're wasting your money what do you why, why bother trying you just go on paying reparations until you've made it right again mm. now that doesn't sort of prove that 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 there's that there isn't something false about that version of guilt but uh, well, I mean, that raises two further interesting questions, doesn't it? One is about the relationship between, if you like, a, a legally established guilt. Mm. We might establish through a treaty what level of reparations one has to pay. Mm. Uh, and the relationship between that and a sort of existential guilt. And after all, how much, how much is a person's life worth? Do you mean how much is... Yes, um, okay and then again? it also raises the interesting question of... Um, I think Derrida talks about this little book on forgiveness. About, you know... What's the relationship between when it's when it's politically expedient to pay reparations or, or make a mm -hmm. uh, appeal for forgiveness, and when it isn't? Uh, for example, um, the there are often uh, demands from uh, African Americans or from Africans for reparations for the slave trade from the USA, and the USA feels guilty about the slave trade 
talks about it, asks forgiveness, but doesn't pay any reparations towards it. And uh, similarly, there's been a um, there was a genocide in Namibia in 1906, uh, and the survivors of the genocide have now been asking for reparations for this. It's a long time ago, of course, um, and they're not being paid, although you know people are bidding sort of liable responsibility. Hmm. So there's a question, isn't there, of, of almost the political leverage guilt has, hmm. and whether if that leverage has been levered that expunges it or not, mm, if you see mm. what I mean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's terribly complicated when, when, when it becomes involved in, with power politics, yeah, because yeah. Uh, if you want to get some money out of a richer country, playing the guilt card may be an excellent card to play, but looking at that transaction may not inform us, you know, may, may not be very good data in telling us about what guilt really is. But um, the, the idea of making it better or of reparation or of making it all all right again is a very complicated notion because I suppose a naive way of understanding it would be to say, well, you just have to go on doing the nice thing until you've got rid of the harm. Now, of course, there, first of all, there are some harms that can never be undone. But secondly, there are really central cases of reparation, like kissing it better, where actually the kiss doesn't make the bruise go away. Um, the, but it does make it better. So actually, reparation might it might be that the fundamental notion of reparation is not uh, giving something that has a certain kind of effect, but that it's a symbolic transaction. But if you think it's a symbolic transaction, symbolic of what? You know. What to, uh, um, and of course, atonement, penance can be thoroughly symbolic. I mean, how much you, you, the, the quantum of pain that you need to inflict on yourself to have sort of done a decent amount of penance, done enough penance is presumably purely symbolic. But do, do, we, do we know, do we know when we finish? I'm trying to think of uh, literary examples, they're always easiest. Isn't it the case in uh, the Mayor of Casterbridge that having sold his wife and daughter, he swears off drink for 20 years, and that's his, that's his sort of paying out for his, his crime, and then he takes a drink afterwards, of course, but I mean, isn't I mean, is there a sense that we know when we've we've paid off our guilt? I mean, do we still feel, or does it just fade away in the passage of time? Do we still feel guilty for things? And doesn't that tell us then that there's, there might be different intensities of guilt? Yes, there there surely are. Mm. There surely are. I mean, I don't think that there's a tariff written in heaven for how many years you have to give up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For selling your wife. But, yeah, but, but on the other hand, people. Uh, and, and, but there's, there are, there's such a thing as overdoing it, isn't there? Mm. And there's such a thing as underdoing it. Um, and when people overdo it, you might say, ah, well, this is irrational guilt, not because it's got the wrong object, but just because they're too guilty for the thing that they've done. Mm. Um, and that's what underlies the Lex Talonis, isn't it? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, is about measuring out exactly the level of guilt and reparation. Hmm. Which is an entirely symbolic tariff, by the way, isn't it? I mean, an eye for an eye. What what good is that going to do anybody, as it were? Well, presumably, you know, it's like a, a cow for a cow, presumably. Oh, you know, think it's like a cow for a cow. Okay. That's the, um, well, that seems a fair... If I kill your cow, you give me a cow back. Um... <laughs> Indeed, but I mean, if I, if I yeah. sort of stick a knife in your eye and then feel terrible about it and... 
I can't make up for it by sticking a knife in my own eye. It's not no. like giving you my cap. No, that's that's, um, that's true. <laughs> might be weird technological yeah, scenarios yeah. in which. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm also interested in your in your account of uh, guilt relation to child development too. That seems mm. to be a very potent form of thinking through these issues. Mm, mm, I mean, mm. When is it that children start to feel? Guilty, and when can we? When do they start to feel guilty? Is that different from how we might think when they should feel guilty? Does yeah. that make sense? Uh, yeah, but I guess that <coughs> unless they're capable of guilt, you can't really fault them for mm. not feeling it. Um, I, the, I don't know the answer, and there may be psychologists in the audience who can give a much better answer than I can. But I think I think it comes in bits. You know, there are different phenomena. Um, so uh, looking up, d doing an upset face when you see that you've caused a, cer a certain special person harm. Um, that isn't identical with guilt, but it's a component of guilt, and you sort of fit the different bits together, and somewhere along the line you've, you've got it. But I'd say that you've probably pretty well everybody's got it by the time they're four, but you mm. wouldn't have anything much before you're about 12 or 18 months. Um, but that's, I mean, you know, psychoanalytic theorists would say something very different. But as far as it's revealed to us in experience, when uh, when we start feeling guilty, that 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 would be very roughly the story. Something I suppose that um, maybe it's yet another phenomenology, or maybe it's a variant on the stuff that I was discussing before. Um, but uh, some writers, including psychoanalytic writers, have associated guilt uh, with fear of loss of love. So they think that a connection with another person, a loving connection with another person, is somehow an essential ingredient to the experience of guilt. Being frozen out by, um, by a loved one as a punishment, um, as it were, whether you've really been frozen out by them, what you experience in guilt is the experience of being frozen out by an internal other. Um, and there is a theory about how to teach your children to behave properly, um, which is called the, I think rather chillingly actually, called the love withdrawal method. <laughs> so what you, what you say, what you say, there's going to be three, either you can yell at your children, or you say, look, if you do this, so-and-so will be harmed, and you've got to understand how much that teddy bear means to them, and so on and so on. Um, or you say, if you do that, I won't be your friend. Um, <laughs> and as it were, uh, uh, but, but, you know, there are, there are, somebody, I can't remember which famous philosopher, said that, I'm going to say it was Aquinas, actually, mm -hmm but it may not have been. Um, Aquinas worried about what the torments of hell consisted of, because if you're disembodied, how can you really experience the discomfort of being boiled in pitch and so forth? And uh, he said the only real pain of hell is knowledge of your distance from God. So being excluded from you know, the loving embrace of the right sort of person might be, some people say, well, that, that's what guilt really is. I'm not, I'm not so sure. Well, what do you think the, about that? When I was thinking of your, when you, before you got to the, the child, I mean, that sense of, uh, in the Christian tradition, that sense of guilt is exactly your uh, sort of pain on being distanced from God, isn't it? It's mm. a, a very traditional Christian, Christian understanding of what mm. guilt is. It's, mm. sort of, it's sort of inverse, 
it's the inverse of love in a way, isn't it? Yes. Although, I mean, scratch the surface. And first of all, not everybody is taught uh, how to behave themselves by the love withdrawal method. Mm. And so different styles of upbringing, not just different religious backgrounds, might feed in different ways into alternative phenomenologies of guilt. Um, but another thing is that actually um, it may well be that growing up with a loving other or loving others has got some important part to play in the story about how we become self-regulators. But lovers can fall out and make up and unless it's some very, very catastrophic falling out, they go on loving each other even when they're not on speaking terms. So to say, well, what I'm doing now is withdrawing my love, somebody who knew the truth of that theory, I mean, obviously a three-year-old isn't going to be able to say, rubbish, you're not withdrawing it. You're, you're, you're going to love me all the time. You know, you, we, we love each other now, even when we're, we're shouting at each other or hitting each other, whatever it is. Um, so... At best, the love withdrawal theory of what occasions guilt and the experience of withdrawal of love as a phenomenology, account of the phenomenology of guilt, is once again symbolic. What's withdrawn is a token, mm. not the real thing, because, you know, the parent and the child, they love each other throughout the episode. So I, I don't like the love withdrawal no. theory either, but, but it's, it's another one that's on the market, as it were. I suppose there's one more thing that, that, that's on my mind as well about people's. It seems people have different sensitivities to guilt, don't they? Mm, mm, well, the mm. thing that make me feel guilty might leave you completely cold, yeah, or vice versa. Yeah, yeah, and of course there are guilt-prone people and non-guilt-prone people, but that's all within. I mean, it's jolly hard to say. Just like it's jolly hard to say what's the quantum of suffering that's necessary to inflict on yourself to have really, you know, done your proper atoning, but. But it's very hard to say how, much, how guilty it would be appropriate to feel in relation to this, that or the other. But we do have a notion of overdoing it, don't we? Mm. So-and-so is guilt-prone, so-and-so is guilt-ridden, mm. so-and-so is so thick-skinned, they just seem, you know, why don't they feel worse about this? We, we do have some rough measure, don't we? And that tells us, too, something about the relationship between individuals and the societies in which they find themselves, don't mm. they? Mm. About, about how they regulate themselves in relation to their societies. Yeah, so that's yeah. interesting, yeah. yeah. Which would mean, in fact, that if there was somebody in here that didn't feel guilty at all, we would start to worry slightly, perhaps. Yeah. Although, again, you might even ask the question, well, where did you grow up? And you never, you say you never feel guilty. And perhaps there are, as I said, that, that guilt, guilt might be put together out of various different cultural bits, mm. and perhaps it's possible to grow up and not feel that. Um, do you think it would be a good time to open up sure. the discussion? Partly I, um, I'm asking this out of a selfish reason. <laughs> Maybe one question just popped into my uh, mind regarding this last bit of the conversation. Mm. So we've been talking about guilt um, as an emotion, right? But um, perhaps we can also distinguish between being guilty and feeling guilty, right? I mean, someone might not be prone to guilt or might not feel guilty, but we might still say from the outside perspective, well, that person is guilty because he, did some, he or she did something wrong. Right? So, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, maybe? 
Well, I suppose we say that quite a lot, don't we? I mean, it's what law courts... It's often the case who the defendant is taken from the dock, having been sent down, mm. proclaiming his innocence, that he hadn't done some terrible thing. Mm-hmm. So he is guilty, but doesn't feel guilty. Mm. But I often, I, I often, the, 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 the reverse I find more interesting, when people feel like in a grey and green level, they feel terribly, terribly guilty, and they, they haven't done anything terribly, terribly bad. Yeah. That's because they're all Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> But, but as in, in also in the breaking the diet case, you might say, you know, it's a bit strange to say that this person's guilty of breaking the diet, because what, what, what have they broken other than, you know, they, well, they, they decided like to do it, can't they decide not to? Promise to yourself, right? I mean, you can mm. live, fail to live up to your own expectations, maybe. You and can. That might be related to this withdrawal of love, too. Maybe you know that the other person will go on loving you, but maybe you feel that you're actually not worthy of their love anymore, mm. regardless. Hmm. You, you, you might think that that's true. But do you, when you break a diet, yeah. do you feel ashamed or do you feel guilty? I think <laughs> I think people sometimes feel one and sometimes feel the other and sometimes they feel both. Do you feel shame before you feel guilty? You feel shame. You feel shame, so you do a diet and then you feel guilty. But there might be. Oh, sorry. I was wondering if there's in terms of dieting, whether there's a difference mm. between. Um, the traditional difference between shame is that you know, shame is externally created and, uh, and guilt is sort of more important. So it's a very, very stupid, quick way of saying it. But you, but you might diet for important health reasons, mm. which would make you feel, which is more, and when you break that, that's more profound. If you're going to die of a heart attack, you're going to leave your children without a father, kind of thing. Whereas if you're just dieting to fit into your summer swimming trunks, it's a different sort of matter. I think it's it's the the guilt about dieting though can be I mean it can really be guilt and it can be pretty trivial and superficial. I mean look at the way in which uh, references to sin and transgression are used in the marketing of nice things. So certainly in my childhood there were two ice cream brands. One was called Puritan Maid. <laughs> and the other one was called hi-hat, the hi-hat being the most visible sign of being a Puritan, you know, hi-hat. Um, and there was another advertising campaign for cream cakes or something, which was naughty but nice, that was the slogan. So, look, it's bad, do it. Um, well if they would have never sold any ice creams or cream cakes had there not been some intuitive connection between doing something pleasant and mm. guilt. And puzzlingly, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> I'm just remembering Puritan made, actually. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> right, let's take some questions from the audience. Um, well, yeah, no, so your hand in yeah. uh, Would you like to say something about survival guilt? Um, would you like to say something uh, about survival guilt? Uh, um, yes, I would like to say something about survival guilt. Uh, uh, but very, very tentatively. Okay? Uh, uh, I think that the way survivor guilt is talked about is usually slightly wrong. I think that um, a number of survivors were... There's a book called The Cap or The Price of a Life by a man who ends up being a, a journalist for Maxwell whose name has temporarily escaped me. And it starts off uh, in a terrible, terrible uh, camp um, and he, his, he is raped by a capo and his cap 
is stolen and thrown away. And so that means that when he goes to the morning call, he's going to be killed. Because he has not a uniform, he'll be killed. And so he steals somebody else's cap. Okay? So he survives, and he survives the war, and the person whose cap he steals, doesn't know who it is, is that he's killed. And he carries this with him for his life. And that's, and that's a sort of, that seems to me to be a, a genuine and awful sort of guilt. And I think lots of survivors have guilt of this sort. But I think when people talk about survivor guilt, they talk about it in a way that uh, in films, for example, the survivor says, oh, I survived and so many didn't. I feel guilty just because I've survived. And I, I think that's, I think that's a, uh, a sort of fictional softening of this the cap or the price of a life kind of story. So I, I, when people talk about survivor guilt, it's really, I, you know, I, I, I'm not a psychologist, and I, you know, I don't work with survivors, but I'm always slightly, it makes me slightly anxious because it seems to be a sort of covering up of some other sorts of things. I'm not blaming the man for stealing the cap. I sort of, you know, it's beyond my moral, I couldn't possibly make a judgment about it. But I, I think it's, a, it, it's that sort of issue. Um, Primo Levi has a fantastic story. a fantastic uh, story where he um, there are three of them working in the basement, and it's the summer, and they're very very thirsty. And he finds in a pipe some water, and he and his there are two Italians. He and the other Italian uh, drink. She, Alberto share half the water, and the third person sees they've had the water and hates them for not sharing it with him as well. And there's a terrible moment where Levi has to admit his own. You know, his guilt in relation to this third person. I, I, that seems very credible. I, but I wonder if, I mean, there are cases where um, people apparently feel guilt where they're not victims of anybody else's crime. So, for example, if two people are in an accident and one survives and the other doesn't, the survivor might feel guilty. Um, and somehow the more closely related they are, if they're siblings or if they're twins or something, so the more arbitrary it seems that one survived and the other didn't, one can, it, 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 you know, the, the survivor will say, well, I, I feel bad, why was it me? And I don't know what thought underlies that. Mm. And I don't want to, but clearly there's not, no crime was perpetrated um, and there's no bad thing, actual bad thing that they're covering up. Now, some people have said to me, well, there's a fantasy of harm. That's the Freud to make this, yeah, To make this coherent, the twin has got to imagine that she sort of shoved her sister a little bit further to the side or that she distracted the driver or even if this didn't occur. Um, but I don't know. I mean, one would want to go through different instances where this is said to occur and really find out what did you think what do you think you did wrong I'm not sure it's puzzling but it, it may be really interestingly related to the collective guilt thing that somehow or other um, by a very close association with somebody else um, you can feel certain things which in normal circumstances you, you wouldn't whether the association is being a twin or being a member of the same group or the same nation. Right. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for that. The, the, the discussion has largely and exclusively been on a rational basis. I wonder if I could ask you to consider the notion of an innate or an intrinsic sense of what's right and wrong 
and that we, we feel guilt regardless of the outcome. There may have been no bad outcome, the outcome may even have been positive, hmm. but we know that our motive or where we were coming from was not a, uh, a, a so that we are in some sense born with a sense of, of profound reflection of what's right and what's wrong. Well, that, that's, that's Levinas, isn't it? That's mm, so it's akin to Levinas. That's a, 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 I'm not sure about being, for Levinas, about being born with a sense of right or wrong, but being born or coming into the world or being aware of the world in terms of knowing that we're, we're bound up, we're responsible for other people. Now, I, think that's, I think that's certainly something to that. Now, whether, how it catches out as right or wrong, I'm not sure, but I, I certainly think that's Levinas's position. Uh, we're all responsible for everything uh, and in, f in front of everybody, uh, but I'm more responsible than all the others. That's sort of Levinas's position of, of fundamental responsibility for which ethics and codes and deciding what's right and wrong might vary from time to time, from place to place, but that there is such an idea of there being a right and a wrong comes from, I think. Right, yeah. In the back, yeah, there, exactly. Yeah, I just wanted to ask, why would there be any place for guilt in Kant's autonomous subject or uh, the, the, the modern self? Because if guilt is a feeling and it's relational, wouldn't it either be... Uh, like an erroneous kind of loss of the self or inauthentic in not being a product of rational agency? Well, um, if there's such a thing as rational as opposed to irrational guilt, so guilt that's justified, um, presumably you, the, the occasion for experiencing it would be, uh, sorry, and right conduct consists in rational conduct, then the occasion for experiencing guilt would be deviating in some way from the requirements of reason. So you're right to say that there would be, that there is an association between guilt and imperfection. I don't think that it's impossible though to make sense of guilt if you think that fundamentally the mechanism of self-regulation is reason. Because, I mean, that, that would be the, the phenomenology of guilt there would be just another, another version of the internal tribunal, wouldn't it? And so you would feel that you've, you'd transgressed the requirements of reason. That would be a distinctive account of where those requirements came from. But I, mean, I don't see why it should be uh, impossible to explain guilt on those assumptions. Surely a lot of our guilt is learned as children. Um, I was thinking of the of chariots of fire, you know, where the, the Christian guy feels guilty if he runs on the Sabbath, and the Jewish guy feels guilty if he's not the best. Well, surely these are things they've learnt, and they stay with people probably the whole of their lives, unless they can somehow undo them. That, that's absolutely right. I mean, I suppose that, that one respect in which guilt very definitely is culturally and individually variable is in relation to which kinds of acts our upbringing connects with guilt. So there are somebody who receives a Sabbatarian upbringing doing you know, running or whatever it is on Sunday might be the worst possible thing and it's not an occasion for guilt in, in another case. But in, in a way that's 
that's that's easy to explain because you can say, well, it's recognised the person who feels guilty about running on a Friday, uh, Sunday, um, is different in a certain respect from the person who feels guilty about running on Saturday, but it's we don't want to say that it's a different emotion. There really is just a different kind of cultural path down which one and the same feeling has been channeled. Would, does, does that seem right to you? I mean, and of course some of those things we may want to throw off and others we may want to stick with. Well, I think what interests me is when it, it like affects the whole person, the person's whole life. Mm. You know, I don't mean just like when they're teenagers or something, mm. but you can see how some people in history, mm. their whole lives have been motivated by a fear of failure mm. or, or a, a sense of guilt that they've done something wrong and mm. therefore they've got to do something to, to, so that everybody will, will like them. Yeah. Well, the, so the Sabbatarian example is an, is an interesting case, actually, because um, I mean, you can you, things from your childhood can stick with you um, and you can have no occasion to protest against them. You might think, yeah, on reflection, I was brought up in the right way and I'm pleased that I still feel guilty about doing whatever it is that I was taught was wrong when I was a child. But the example of religious observance um, is a case where, I mean, there, there are lots, but where, um, so suppose I had a strict religious upbringing. Um, uh, I've lost my faith, I never go to church, um, but still, if I sleep in on a Sunday, I feel so guilty about doing it that it's pointless. I mean, there's no point in trying to relax on a Sunday just watching television in bed because my guilt is going to wreck it. And as much as I rehearse the arguments for, you know, the non-existence of God, this is beneficial because it will make me to work more effectively in the, the other six days of the week and so on, it won't budge. So I have to do chores on a Sunday. Okay. I, I can only manage my guilt if I do something unpleasant. And that's an interesting case of a hangover from childhood because it's a case where guilt is a bit like gout or something. It's just a damn nuisance. I keep getting it, you know, and I have to manage it. But it's not a response to not a response to what I now think are the real rights and wrongs of the situation. Okay, I know there's lots and lots of questions. Bear with me. I'll try to get you all. So early on, there was you had your hand up, and then there's a question there, there, and then we'll hopefully get you. keep raising your hands if I haven't if you haven't asked your question. Uh, I'm from Europe, as you know, we had a very big earthquake last year. And what happened for the next few months after the earthquake was people stopped eating up after work, which was part of a big cultural thing. More Japanese people often go out to eat than in this part of the world. And the reason was what we call little meaning is self-restraint, which is kind of combination of feeling bad and guilty. Whenever I try to explain this feeling to my non-Japanese friends, especially so-called Westerners, they seem to have a very difficult time understanding that. Some of my British friends said, well, you're from Tokyo, and you're talking about people in Manchester got hit by a really disastrous you know, thing, and you stop eating out. That wouldn't probably happen to people in London. Is it cultural difference? <laughs> Well, I think, I mean, uh, there might be an, an analogy with 9-11. Uh, uh, in New York and across the States, there was a, 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 a temporary change in cultural behaviour. Uh, 
wasn't there after after some terrible uh, in that case not it's after some terrible disaster or in this case after some terrible natural disaster and I, I mean is that, is that a question of guilt or a question of I would think it's more like cancelling the party because somebody's died or that, that, mm. that, that one doesn't need guilt to exp- I mean, you would have felt guilty if you'd gone out and celebrated while there was this national mood but do we need to bring in guilt to explain the self-restraint in the first place? Well, in Japanese context, we do, but I sometimes wonder if it's actually guilt. Mm, and you use the same wor- word that you use for guilt, do you? Yeah. Ah, right. I, I wonder whether there is an equivalent... Uh, we didn't talk about uh, shame and guilt. That's something no. you've, you've written about. Uh, something the last question drew up. Uh, in, um, in Victorian... Uh, Britain, there are very, um, there are quite profound mourning rules, particularly for widows, about mm. what you're allowed mm. to wear and when you could start wearing, take off all black clothes and where you had to wear a black bonnet and so on. And yet, if you read 19th century novels, it's often the case that widows get quite cross about having to dress in black for so long, and they're sort of shamed into it by the, the mm. their mothers-in-law, or whoever it might happen to be. And I wonder whether there isn't some, there isn't a, a a shade between a guilt and a shame, which is partially what this question and that question is talking about. I mean, it may be that people genuinely didn't want to go out for dinner, and then slowly, uh, as the months passed, they wanted to do more and more, but didn't feel they were quite able to because they were ashamed if they wanted to. Yeah, I don't think the fact that the thing's socially enforced um, and may not be deeply felt shows that it's shame rather than oh, guilt okay. I, I think that you could have you know you could have social mechanisms that guilt trip people yeah. and enforce certain kinds of behaviour <laughs> even if nobody really feels very guilty about it um. okay. yep. mm-hmm. uh, sorry behind you and then you mm-hmm. I've been trying to That's a really good question, Sarah. Thank you. Um, I suppose. Well, um, I suppose um, I, I, lots of those Foucauldian things. I think of 
perhaps wrongly in my rather naive way as being to do with sort of being shamed into things being sort of forced into things by, by other people sort of, and that sort of self-regulation that, that's why I was thinking about widows and widows costumes in the 19th century that's sort of disciplining of, of people um, and I, I suppose I, I, I'm, I wonder whether guilt again like a Graham Greene novel isn't something that sort of comes upon you and is almost I want, is it more visceral than politics is guilt I see that shame is taught to you by political circumstances and so on. Um, but I wonder whether guilt is somehow more visceral, but somehow perhaps they're more political. I'm trying to think also at my example of the feeling guilt or shame about the suppression of the Mau Mau Rebellion and, and the things that happened there. I mean, those are clearly politicised feelings, aren't they? Um, and do we find, do we think that, well, I suppose, how how easy is it, it's easy to manipulate shame, isn't it? All we, all we have to do is have endless articles in the Daily Mail making you feel ashamed of something. But how is it, easy, how easy is it to manipulate guilt? If someone makes, tries to make you feel guilty, we have that phrase, that phrase guilt tripping. Mm. You could say you're guilt tripping me, that's a sort of reaction to that. And that's not, that's different from being made ashamed somehow. So I wonder, I, yeah. Sorry, that wasn't an answer at all. That was a disconnected two sentences. So I think it's a very, very interesting question. I've been on this thing about whether. Um, so one dimension to an answer might be to uh, talk about the extent to which guilt has a social dimension rather than a purely internal dimension. Um, and I think actually to, to pick up what you were just saying. Um, I think you can't differentiate between guilt and shame in that respect. So, of course, there are cases where a solitary person can feel terribly guilty about something that nobody else knows about, but there are also cases in which you feel perfectly all right about something you've done, but then all of a sudden you tell your friend and you feel terrible because it's only in, re in the experience of retelling that certain details become salient because this is a special other person that you're talking to. I must I really don't recognise that as an Damn. experience. Ah. I, I find that very. I find that very. Uh, sorry, you mentioned it three times. You mentioned it each time. I wanted to say, I really don't recognise that. I think if I feel guilty, I feel guilty, whether I tell somebody or not. Mm. I don't suddenly feel. I occasionally feel guilty because I suddenly think to myself, oh, I didn't do that thing, mm. or I should have done this. So that strikes me something I haven't done, mm. but not when I tell somebody. I sometimes feel ashamed when that happens. Mm. Mm. That's not the same as being guilty. No, indeed, and of course well, you can feel ashamed when you tell somebody, but you can also feel ashamed of somebody which nobody else knows about. Yeah, yeah, uh, so, so, so I think guilt and shame are on all fours in that respect. On the Foucault, well, I mean, there's a lot to say about. It. I mean, so the, you say, why didn't we have a Reichian mo moment? There's a there's a, a sort of long tradition of thought about guilt, according to which, um, I mean, so. Uh, for every person who says that guilt is the real emotion of self-regulation, you're not a mature moral agent until you're capable of feeling guilt, guilty, there's somebody else who says, no, guilt is just this pointless punitive emotion in order to be a true autonomous self-regulator. You've got to lose the disposition to feel guilt. And I suspect that those views are both wrong because I suspect that there are just good and bad versions of the emotion. Of course, there's self-punitive guilt, but I hesitate to say that every case of guilt uh, is something that we would 
be better off as you know more mature as moral agents if we were able to do without it and i'd say that perhaps particularly in relation to the kinds of guilt that give rise to reparation i mean you've heard me say it in relation to the kind of guilt that's associated with penance and uh, feeling bad vis-a-vis -vis a judge or assessor too i think there are non-pathological forms of that emotion but certainly in the i i don't think we'd be better for throwing off the disposition to make reparation for things that we feel guilty about. On the Foucauldian moment, I mean, it's interesting that you said, um, well, uh, maybe we should, that there's a missing political dimension to this discussion, so we should have brought in Foucault. And I'm afraid I can't add the political dimension that you're missing. But what I would say, and perhaps you'll say this is an instance of adding a political dimension, I think that Foucauldian notions to do with power and the way in which the organization of space and the organization of time express power and thereby serve to regulate people can be very good tools of analysis in the nursery. You don't have to talk about national politics or global politics, but the fact that the handbag is in the locked cupboard is a spatial expression of authority. Uh, and there are many, many others. You know, putting a child in a... I never did this, but maybe... maybe I mean, uh, I think it's weird, but it, putting, a child, putting a child in this sort of fenced area in the middle of a room so that you can get on with something on the other side of the room. Goodness me. I mean, I think Foucault would have a lot to say about that. <laughs> That's totally true about the handbag. Yeah. <laughs> In front of you, sorry. Keep raising hands. If, if we are all products of our social and physical environment, then we might find the unifying theme characteristic of all guilt by examining our collective and individual guilt about causing global warming. But I noticed that neither speaker said anything about that. So I'm wondering what, why is that? What, what, do, do you deny that global warming is real? <laughs> well, I, if you do, then maybe you ought not to feel guilty. But if you accept that global warming is real, and the vast majority of people do, then shouldn't we be talking about that? Isn't that a unifying theme of guilt? Well, I, I think when I, when I talk about Levinas' responsibility, I think that's it. That's, we'd all feel responsible for... for well, uh, sorry, I'll start again. What about Levinas' responsibility? When Levinas talks about guilt, he, he means you know we're responsible for things, and everybody's responsible. So everyone is everyone is guilty, if you like. So I think he'd be very open, or that way of thinking is quite open to saying everyone is responsible for for global warming, for example. So I think I think you're right. That we are all. That's why we should all turn our lights out. You know, that's like, well, why couldn't you give any examples to support that view? Um, I don't know. Just didn't, didn't come up. But I there think are lots of things to feel right. guilty about. Yeah. Um, it is an interesting case, though, isn't it? Because um, flip it around and find some positive outcome for which a huge number of people have, to which a huge number of people have theoretically made very tiny contributions. We're very ready to say, "Well done, folks. We all did it together." The obverse. You know, like the war effort or something. People take credit for some good outcome, even though, you know, what did they actually do? 
but in the case of guilt, people are very ready to say, no, 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 it's not me, it's not me, it's the, the oil companies or the big somebody or others. Um, that's, that confirms your point, though. And, and it also ties into what we're talking about, about reparations. If it, you know, we are responsible for global warming, so what level of reparation are we prepared to make towards that? And that's one of those, that's again a, a very political question, how much are we prepared to sacrifice or change how we how we behave. Yeah. I've got a very straightforward uh, ask. Have you thought of the relationship between guilt and anger? That's more your... Mm. Mm. Interesting. Interesting one. I mean... I think some people couldn't hear the question. It was about the, what is the relationship between guilt and anger was the question. Mm. There's a, a lot of people... Have had things to say about guilt and fear, um, and so I suppose you might say that if what guilt really is that, that you can't you can't understand guilt unless you think about uh, anger, you might say, well, that's a case of the fear theory, because guilt is somehow fear of retaliation. Um, that that's what's regulating your behaviour is fear of anger on the part of some special other person. But I'm not sure that that it's a it's good to try and reduce one to the other. I'm not trying to reduce them. I'm mm. thinking of a relationship between the two, mm. and I think mm. there is uh, a sense of being angry because I'm guilty. Mm. I'm made to feel guilty, or I I feel guilt, and why should I feel guilt? But, but isn't that a way of evading mm. us? When you are, that's the way. And one thing we all do, and again, so go back to global warming as well. We're, we're constantly very evasive of our responsibilities of our guilt, aren't we? And, and anger is one is a particularly is one particular strategy to avoid feeling guilty. If I feel guilty, I'm angry instead. How dare you make me feel guilty? Well, it's your feeling, but I, I think that we can feel angry in in a circumstance that somebody else might feel guilty. Mm. Mm. But but I think that actually when I said you could try and reduce it to the fear theory, I didn't either think that's a good idea or want to put those words into your mouth. But but I took it that another dimension of what you're asking is why can't we just say that uh, guilt is the fundamental experience of guilt is the experience of another's anger, perhaps some special other's anger. Is that that what you think? Or my own of? anger. Or your own anger. Because I'm not in a way. I haven't got the capacity, maybe through upbringing, brainwashing or whatever, mm. to actually be angry. I have to mm. feel guilty instead. And I think it's, it's, it's certainly something that I feel mm. um, or have felt in the past and have sort of tried to reorganise. And I, I do think there's a great relationship with that. Yeah. Um... And I think going back to global warming, this sense of outrage that we might, some people might have, and, and guilt that other people might have, and absolute ignorance other people might have, collectively. And I think shame comes into it. I think there's a difference between shame and being ashamed. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the, I, I can be angry for having shame because somebody's placed it on me, mm -hmm. whereas actually it is mine. And I think, again, it goes into the emotion what is an emotion? Mm. What comes directly from me, and what is sort of sidelined? Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a very interesting point. I mean, on, on on the idea that guilt is a response to another's anger, I mean, I think that 
there are ways that, suppose you have a very, very angry parent, a parent who's disposed to just fly off the handle at the least uh, drop of a hat. Um, it could be that you learn to treat this parent as a special kind of nuisance, perhaps a very frightening nuisance, but it's, it's like having a dog uh, that, that growls and barks all the time. And I, mean, I think if somebody said, guilt is the response to the, the dog barking at you, that, that wouldn't make sense, would it? So I feel that you've got to add something to anger uh, to explain how you can get guilt out of the experience of that. Because if there was just this permanently angry person, you might just might just lead to certain sort of avoidance strategies because it's unpleasant to be on the receiving end of that, but it would never actually give rise to guilt. And, and so, I, but but I think it's a good thought. Okay, I can see lots and lots more questions. We had your hand up for a long time, so I'll take you. Um, you were speaking earlier about how reparation is often symbolic um, because we we simply can't really make things better or we do something that has no effect at all like kissing it better. And then you ask the question symbolic of what? Mm. And I was wondering what you think of the prospects of having a symbol symbolism of your respect for whoever it is you're making reparations towards. And then I was thinking I think this could help us with the kind of transgenerational or collective guilt. Um, because while it would be strange to think that we were responsible for slavery to happen before we were born. Um, it would be very sensible and probably to our credit to want to demonstrate real respect for the descendants of the slaves. Mm, mm, mm. That's an interesting thought. That's a useful thought. Thank you. But then, no, I, we might go further and say it's fine to show me respect, but you know, where's the where's the money? How are you actually going to show it? What's your actual? It's no good just saying I'm sorry for the potato famine. Where you actually? How are you actually going to? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for the talk. It's very uh, inspiring. So during the conversation, I developed a theory. So it's like guilty guilt is coming from something inside yourself. Compared with the thing, it's more about something around you to tell you what's wrong or what's right. It's actually something you consider super to you. And then crime is more about something like legally on paper, this is right or wrong. Will that give some comments on I'm right thinking it in a right way or a wrong way? Or what's what's come comments you you would like to put here? Yeah, I, I mean I, w I wonder how that would make sense of the uh, feeling guilty about breaking the diet, whether there isn't a rule it's just your own resolution. Yeah, I think in my understanding is guilty is about your self thinking something right or wrong. So everything is related to your self's value system. You think something wrong, then you feel hmm. guilty to do it. Especially for example the the, the like the global warming thing. So it is really not a surprise for me for some people in a developing country that struggle to live every day. So in their value system, global warming they don't care at all, so they don't feel guilty at it at all. So everything about beauty, by the end, I think that's the most important line during to talk about this, is guilty is about self-regulation. So to come in from that, so everything guilty is actually very rational. It's all coming from your value system. For example, like the Japanese uh, 
example that the guy talked before. So Japanese, I mean, by my very naive understanding of Japanese culture, it's a very collateral way of thinking things. They collaterally be proud, be proud of something. They very collaterally, so that's the way of their culture. So that's their value system. So they think, you know, a, a city gets a disaster, so they all feel guilty. So it's all coming from their value system. So if you're thinking about that, so I think it's, it's just one single line, and it's guilty, it's coming from your self-regulation, which based on your value system, that I kind of think it's answered all the questions. For example, even the early question about when children start to think to feel guilty. Mm. So I think the answer would be, uh, not a direct answer like which age, but would be like from the day he knows what is wrong or right, then he will start to feel guilty. I just, I mean, look, there's, there's a, that, that's a, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to say in relation to that, but just one thought is that um, there may be a tension between the idea that guilt is something internal, that it's to do with you regulating yourself, and the idea that guilt has all got to do with your value system. Because I noticed that when you brought in Japan uh, and the value system of the Japanese, uh, you switched from talking about uh, internal mechanisms of self-regulation to talking about ones that are social in origin. So I think that, that it may well be true that, that guilt is a, connected up with your value system, but I think that we would need to do a lot of work to disentangle what contribution, you know, the inner life of the person and what contribution the social was making in that story. Okay, I think, I think we have only time for one more question, so I'd like to um, get someone else's question. Yeah, the, you, yeah. I was wondering what you make of the increasing place awarded by the criminal justice system to what's now labeled as restorative justice, which is compounded with mm -hmm. you, and where it seems that a new penal system insist on producing guilt within someone who initially doesn't experience guilt and how that will lead to operations. So I wonder what your thoughts are on this. Yes. Uh, I, I suppose uh, I uh, my gut feel goes two ways. On the one hand, I think I think the sense of uh, making someone feel uh, guilty and responsible for something they've done by introducing them to the pensioner who they've robbed or something seems to me to be quite a good social tool. On, on the other hand, I also have a sort of very boring Guardian reading worry that, of course, the legal system is, is um, you know, offence done... Uh, mucking a pensioner is offence to, offence to the pensioner and also to the state and in fact it's the state that's putting people in prison not the pensioner and I, I'm keen to revenge uh, Sidney said revenge is a kind of wild justice and I'm quite keen for justice not to be wild and for the restorative justice can tip into revenge particularly when it's done in the Daily Mail so I, that's my concern for that I think I, I'd say that uh, you, you might um not like the particular forms that restorative justice takes, whether you agree with people wearing special coloured clothing so that they're visible as criminals. But I think the thought behind restorative, one good thought behind the idea of restorative justice is that um, part of what makes punishment acceptable, if it can be made acceptable, is that it has a meaning for the person who is being punished. Um, 
rather than that just we're sort of putting them in a box and putting them away somewhere. And so I suppose the idea that we should try and induce the appropriate kind of feelings in uh, as part of the punishment process or as part of the judicial process is a nod towards that idea, which I think is a good idea. Okay, unfortunately we're now out of um, time. As always, we'll still have lots to think and lots to ask about, which is probably a good thing, so we can all continue to think about this at home. Please join me in thanking our speakers and thank you very much.